Hello and welcome to My Boga Conversations. My name is Lee Albert and this is MyBoga.com. I'm here today with Jonathan Dickinson, who's a counsellor and consultant who's been working with Iboga and Ibogaine since 2009. He currently resides in Tijuana, Mexico, where he works under a private practice, SIBA Ibogaine Therapy, supporting people through the Ibogaine treatment process. He previously served as the director of the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance, GITA, during which time he led the development of the clinical guidelines for Ibogaine-assisted detoxification, a risk management guide that remains a standard in the field. He organized several conferences on Ibogaine therapy practice and safety protocols and has collaborated with researchers in multiple disciplines. In 2014, Jonathan was initiated into the Tsumba Fang tradition of Wheatie and Gabon and remains actively involved with both clinical and ceremonial approaches. So I am very uh, honored and proud to have Jonathan with us here today, who, you know, who the last time actually I met was in, in Mexico in 2016, where he organized the uh, International Ibogaine Conference, which was uh, an absolutely uh, fantastic event. It had the cream of the crop from all over the world attending, and, and Jonathan did a marvelous job. So I, I was, I've been no doubt ever since of his commitment to the cause and also, uh, you know, what he offers now down in uh, Mexico is, is something that's really needed for people coming into treatment. Uh, the, you know, this is something we're going to discuss, but you're, you, I can definitely say you're in safe hands when you're dealing with Jonathan. So, Jonathan, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Well, thanks, Albert. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you. I'm doing pretty well. Great. Well, I'm really happy that we're going to have a, a chat to come to. Sorry, the opportunity to come to chat today, um, and I think probably where we can start is maybe you can tell me a little bit about your present work, what you're doing now. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I've been I've been working around Ibogaine, like you said, for for a little while. A lot of that time was. Um, in treatment and so right now the kind of area of that that i'm focusing on is helping people to prepare and also with afterwards to kind of navigate through all the changes that that come up i think like when a lot of a lot of times when people are hearing about ibogaine and hearing about what it does they're very focused in on this moment of the treatment and this you know, walking walking out of opiates or whatever it is without having withdrawal symptoms and waking up the next day with the sense of freedom. But um, there's a lot more that goes into the process as people who have been through treatment come to understand. And so really what I've been doing is sort of focusing on that and helping to provide people with resources and and support as they go through that. So, so what inspired you to take that uh, path? I mean, I know you did an awful lot of work with Gita. I mean, the conference was fantastic. I, I never saw so many people in one place, and people really were. There was a great buzz and and excitement at the time. So, you know, it, it, it's a shame actually that Gita has seems to have uh, gone into sort of uh, uh, you know off the. It's we don't see much of it at the moment. But what what was it that inspired you then to take the path that you're taking? Um, I think for most of the time that I've been around Ibogaine, it was because of the, um, you know, the 
the personal benefits that I was getting out of it for one and because of the transformations that I was watching people go through. And I think the passion and the drive that everybody was bringing to the community discussions was based from that wellspring, you know, of, of hope and transformation. And I think at some point I realized that, you know, there's, there's so much politics and it's so complicated, the issue of legality around this. And here we have this wide open field to be able to still just facilitate this, um, this transformation right now. So, so I've just come back into working with treatment and working with, um, with people at that level. Um, right. So you had your first, uh, your own personal experience in in Gabon um, in 2014. And prior to that, were you like, what brought you to that point? Had you been um, interested in Iboga or why did you go in 2014 to Gabon? Oh, well, I mean, to to the origin story kind of goes back further. Like a, a lot of people came to Ibogaine, um, especially people that were involved earlier because they first had to detox themselves and found that they were able to do that with Ibogaine. Um, for me, I had some, you know, challenges that I faced earlier on with uh, pharmaceutical uh, antidepressants and with alcohol and things and, and had come across psychedelics, and, okay. um, especially mushrooms, and had felt this massive release <laughs> from this really kind of uh, crippling depression that I'd, that I'd been facing for many years. And so I, I came to the field because I got involved with um, drug policy activism in Canada and was really inspired about psychedelics. And through the activism work was learning about um, drug user rights and, and harm reduction and that. So at some point, all of the streams kind of crossed and it became for me this kind of cross section of all these different interests and passions that I had that were driving me forward. So, and also it was just this opportunity to be involved in psychedelic therapy as it was happening. Because as we know, the legal framework for it is still, you know, possibly years off. And, and this was 12 years ago for me. So I, I came to it to, to be involved. Okay. Um, you know, but I've definitely it had my own, my own, um, transformations that I've been through. I think the work that we get to do with Ibogaine it goes much deeper than um, than opiates or any other substance that we're using to kind of treat or cover up or cope. You know, I think it. I think it goes much deeper than that. So. And, uh Yes, no, no. I, I was just going to say um, the recovery cycle, or the, the, the you know the recovery um, life cycle. Um, you know, what is your uh, experience with that? I mean, I'm, I'm I'm actually interested to ask you if you feel that there are other you know the psychedelics. You mentioned psychedelics. Do they play a role post treatment, post ibogaine treatment? Is part of a person's um, 
if you like, uh, facing of issues that may have emerged during the treatment itself? Um, from what I've seen, for a lot of people, they do. I think um, it's more common now that a lot of people have had some experience with psychedelics at some point, especially if they were involved with drugs when they were young, um, that they had some experience with psychedelics and sort of had some awareness that there was something interesting there, that it was a different kind of experience. And um, so I think sometimes for some people, coming through Ibogaine sort of reawakens that interest. And people walk away with this felt sense that those kinds of experiences could still be, be helpful. And I think now we're starting to see that, you know, there's more opportunities to be able to find those experiences in ways that are facilitated in a therapeutic yes. context. Yes. And so I, I've been seeing a lot of people benefiting from you know, either going and becoming a part of an ayahuasca circle or microdosing mushrooms or whatever it is, you know, but I think it's, it's pretty common. Right. So uh, what, what exactly is your role then in, in, in Tijuana? I know that you're, um, we had, a, we had a, a short conversation about this before and you were, you let me know that actually um, you, your, even your, your, your sort of cost structure is based around the local economy rather than the U.S. economy. So I'm just curious, what, what is your role? What, what, what role do you fulfill and how do you go about it? Well, um, I work with people as much as I can before treatment. And I think one of the things that's helpful is to kind of have a as realistic a picture as possible about what the arc of the recovery is going to look like because some of the um, some of the places that people are coming for treatment have pretty short window of time that people are actually at the clinic. So I think um, you know even being even starting at the very simple point of helping people understand that you know you you, you can take five days off of work. And you can try to go back to work right when you get home, but the process is still very much going to be unfolding for, for quite a while. And so I think being properly prepared and resourced before going in is helpful. Um, there's sort of practical, physical, physiological ways to support that with nutrition and exercise and, um, you know, even helping people to prepare with their medications to stabilize um, use and kind of plan around that. And then, um, and then afterwards, it's to continue to, to resource like that and to uh, navigate the, the changes that come up. Because even as much as we can try to prepare for it, it is a little bit difficult to know what it's going to feel like and how real it's going to be until okay. you know, it's, it's happening. So. so so you work with a client, um, you'd have how many sessions, for example, before treatment, how many afterwards, and what would the time scale be? Um, it depends. I, sometimes I'm not meeting people until they're here at the clinics. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
you know, the basic thing that I do is offer something like eight sessions, and some of those can take place while people are here or afterwards. And with some people, um, they don't need as much. And those are cases especially where, you know, my, my role is really that I know a lot about Ibogaine, and I know a lot about the experience that people go through and much more than somebody's existing counselor or psychiatrist is going to know about. So what we can talk about and what we can work through are things that are very specific to the Ibogaine experience. And right. so a lot of times it's just helping people transition into another circle of support afterwards. Great. No, it sounds like a very, uh, very uh, useful um, resource to have because, you know, as, as we know from, from the early days of the, the of Ibogaine uh, in the underground movement, that, that the lack of support was a critical factor for people, you know, who, um, if you like, return to using um, and having someone to sort of give the, somebody that sense of there's somebody there just to pick you up and, and pass you on really must be a very nice thing. And and from what you've told me, it sounds like you're, you're very, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're very reasonable in what you charge. And so I think I would strongly recommend anybody thinking going down to Tijuana to get in touch with you. So on that note, it's actually talking about, you were talking about legal issues, um, perhaps, yeah, legal issues and um, uh, sustainability. I mean, what do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm here in Mexico um, is because I began it's uh, illegal in the United States. And a lot of the people who are coming down for treatment right now are, are Americans um, or Canadians are from from elsewhere, you know, at least here here in Mexico. Um, so there's some really specific uh and unique circumstances around Ibogaine than any other sort of treatment that would be called psychedelic or something similar. Um, Ibogaine's not listed by the United Nations on the, the green list of banned psychoactive substances. So the only places where it's prohibited are places that have specifically mentioned Ibogaine in their legislation or places like uh, where you are in Ireland or or the UK, where they just flat banned any anything that's psychoactive that's not approved. So, um, so there's a really limited number of countries where it's um, flatly prohibited. So here in Mexico, it's it's not. And like most places in the world, doctors kind of have discretion about what they can use for. Um, for treatment, so that's it's a there's a legal framework for it here. Okay. And so that's why, yeah, that's why a lot of people have been coming to Mexico over the past couple decades. And you mentioned to me before about uh, low dosing or low, low, uh, exp your experience experiences with low dosing. Do you want to say something about that? Sure. Well, I mean, it, it sort of leads up to my own experience in in Gabon too, because. Like I said, unlike a lot of people who who come to Ibogaine, I wasn't coming at first to detox. So I actually had this 
benefit of being close to the treatments and being able to work with lower doses for um, for about five years before I went and did a larger dose. So, um, you know, I, I have some experience with that. And, and also I was working with, um, with Claire Wilkins of Pangea Biomedics for many years. And her protocol that she adapted was one of sort of tapering people off of opiates more gradually while working with um, cumulative increasing doses of, of Ibogaine. So it's a little bit different from the standard approach that a lot of clinics use of just doing one large dose over a 24-hour period and turn like stopping the opiates that quickly. So, so the experience that I had over those five years was really working with smaller, smaller doses on, you know, sort of smaller things, smaller things than trying to peel away uh, like the protective armor of opiates. And I think that it, that kind of subtle work is something that Ibogaine and lower doses of Ibogaine are really, really good at. So, I mean, the way that it's informed what I do now is there's a lot of people who have found it really beneficial. We mentioned that there's people who like to have you know, experiences with other psychedelics afterwards. But there's a lot of benefit that people have found in being able to continue to have lower doses of, of Ibogaine and be able to continue their relationship with Ibogaine after treatment for that same reason. So, so that was that was that really informed my experience with Ibogaine for many years. Well, and do you have a preference in terms of you know uh, total alkaloid extract or? you know, um, uh, Ibogaine or, you know, when you say low dose, are you talking about pure Ibogaine or 96, 98%? Are you talking about alkaloid, uh, total alkaloid extract? What are we talking about? Yeah, well, I mean, assuming everyone listening understands the, the difference, um, I, my, my preference is working with Ibogaine hydrochloride, and that's definitely informed by not only just the kind of subjective effects of that medicine, but also the, you know, you, you, you mentioned the, the topic of sustainability, but there's a lot of complication around the sourcing of Ibogaine. So a lot of, um, a lot of Iboga, the root bark, the, the plant source, is still coming from Central Africa and Gabon in particular, where it's not being cultivated widely, or it hasn't been for as far as I know. And, um, you know, the TA that's out there on the market, the total alkaloid extract from that root bark, is mostly being produced from that, from that source. So, unfortunately, it's meant that there's been all kinds of complications there in, in Central Africa. Uh, there's definitely work and really good, nice work that's being done to start cultivation and to make sure that especially traditional communities continue to have access, um, even while the market price of Iboga is rising dramatically, and so they continue their traditions. 
Um, but just because of, of that, you know, I, I work with hydrogen hydrochloride, you know, and it's partly, I think, one, one of the things that people talk about in research and then just with their own experiences is that psychedelics really help put us in communion with the world around us in a different way, and especially with the natural world. And so for me, when I did go to Gabon, it was extremely impressive for me. I mean, I have experience for sure working in taking root bark, um, particularly there in Gabon. Um, but it was so impressive to me to see the directness of the relationship that people have with the plant. And that for me, the benefit of working with the plant came out of that direct relationship. It was, it had less to do with just the fact that it was root bark and more to do with the, the symbiotic nature of the relationship that people had with the forest around them and, and the way that they were um, harvesting the tree. You know, there's a friend of mine went to a, um, a pygmy community and somebody was explaining to him, at least there in their community, they said that the trees that are further in the jungle, those ones are for the ancestors. And so the what they would do would be go to collect the fruits and the, the seeds and plant them closer to the village. And um, the so the, the root bark that they would use would be coming from those trees that they had planted that had grown up with them, that they'd seen kind of um, grow with them through their life, you know. So it was, to me, the, the benefit also came from that really direct and complicated, um, I don't want to say complicated, complex, um, rich relationship with the plant. So for me, um, I think the ambiguity around the sourcing leads to uh, that that I can say fairly is a is a complication that I like to like to avoid. Mm. And I feel a lot more clarity around working with hydrogen hydrochloride and also see that even if we're going to use the language of it, which can be unavoidable when you take it, that there is a spiritual dimension of this experience, it's still very much present yes. with the, the Ibogaine, for yeah. sure. And this is Ibogaine coming from, um, you know, alternative uh, sources as opposed to the traditional plant. Um, That's right. Yeah, so it's more sustainable. That's right, yeah. It's... Uh, most of the clinics in the world right now that are using ibogaine are using ibogaine that's being produced from Vohakanga africana, which is another another tree that's being cultivated in other parts of Africa. So yes. it, is a, it is a renewable resource. It's not being harvested from the wild. Great. Yeah. Well, uh, and I, I can see what you. I can see the logic and uh, of what you've said, and uh, and there's a certain sense of comfort in that in that knowledge that you are not uh, part of the problem with the uh, uh, you know with the uh, if you like you know the, the the loss of of the resources in in Gabon. Uh, so your website, what is it called exactly? Again, uh, sabaibogain.com. So how do I spell that? Seba is C-E-I-B-A, yeah. and then ibogain.com. 
So what, what, what people will find on there is, I mean, they'll find about me and, um, and the work that I do. There's also a bunch of resources on there that are just provided freely that um, can kind of help you plan a little bit. Uh, just, you know, taking the time to read those, I think, will um, help to open up some perspective around what the treatment can be like. Okay. And one other thing that I offer that you can find on the site, too, it's um, right now that everybody's uh, just to date this po- <laughs> this podcast, we're all still in lockdown for, for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long that will be relevant for, but right now, at least we're doing weekly uh, meetings. Usually we're doing them twice a month that are online, smart recovery based uh, discussion groups that are just tailored for people that have been through Ibogaine. So again, it's a it's a resource that's there. Even if people are, you know, going through some other outpatient program or aftercare place or doing some other kind of therapy or working with other practitioners, there's this resource of being able to work with a recovery community that shares that very specific experience. Nice. Which a lot of people, I think, have been finding really valuable. And it's been a really nice group. So you can sign up for the, the call details on the site if you'd like. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, it, it's funny how, you know, the saying goes, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. But um, you were talking to me before about Kratom, is that right? For long-acting uh-huh. opiates. Do you want to just mention something about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that I have been sharing with people um, in terms of preparing for treatment. A lot of times, uh, more and more, you know, people who have been in maintenance treatment um, and are looking for Ibogaine are having a hard time finding a way to to get here. And the, the reason is because you can't come do Ibogaine treatment while, you know, directly coming off of Suboxone or Methadone. So usually the recommendation is, um, I mean, sort of like a, a basic guess would be four weeks for methadone and six weeks for suboxone. And like the physician at the clinic that you go to will be more specific with you. But the recommendation is to switch onto a shorter acting opiate for that amount of time before you're able to comfortably do Ibogaine. So one of the resources that we've been tapping into is the legal status of Kratom in the United States sort of allows that to be available for people outside of, I think, six or seven states. But, um, but a lot of people have found, not with no discomfort, but definitely a lot more comfortable um, than going cold turkey, <laughs> for example. But... Uh, have been have been able to switch on to Kratom for that time. And there's, um, you know, obviously for families that are involved in trying to help somebody prepare for a treatment, there's a lot of benefits to that as opposed to looking for, because a lot right now for a lot of people, because doctors won't prescribe short-acting opiates to most people, unless you're in Canada or uh, some places in Europe, but in the States, a lot of a lot of people won't be able to get legal access to um, short-acting opiates. So their only options are illicit sources, which might mean yes. uh, 
you know, coming in contact with fentanyl yes. that's also tricky to come off of, mm. or just with the lifestyle that yeah. a lot of people on suboxone and methadone have been able to be away from for a while. So, right. so the Kratom helps with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's interesting to know because uh, uh, I was talking with Eric Tal recently about uh, another. Um, uh, plant or a herbal combination called he put together called taper aid which uh -huh. uh, which helps to um uh taper down one's usage so maybe if, if you haven't already spoken to eric about it it's worth having a chat with him um so just going back to maybe the subject of spiritual recovery because really from to my mind anyway um i began um what do you like about it there's it's it's very there's a very much a spiritual component to it and any in any case you know uh, we all have our issues that's why we came to i began to begin with i suppose our iboga and we discover that for myself personally anyway that that uh, rec recovering one's like it's almost like soul recovery that there is that sense of recovering your soul uh, in order to rebuild yourself as a human being so um what what's your what are your thoughts on that in in terms of the the big picture yeah i mean for me it's unequivocally become part of my uh it's not part of my regular spiritual practice because it's not something that i use that much um my definitely my understanding of my place in the the world <laughs> and i don't know if uh if i'd be able to remember the source of it right now but i know in environmental psychology they talk about this idea of the soul as sort of being something that is in its place and, and time you know and i think it's maybe tricky to think of but when we think about art for example something that kind of radiates um, almost that it has a soul, I think it's because it speaks either from its time and place or to our time and place or to the time and place that it's situated. And I think when we look at um, people who, you know, reflect that or who seem to be soulful, it's also sort of expanding our sense of time and space in some in some way, and I don't know if that's that's too complicated. But I think no, 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 a lot no. of times when people are when we're facing addiction, it's because we feel this sense of uh, displacement. Yes. Yes. You know? Yeah. No. I, 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 I like from, yeah, yeah, from my yeah. own experience, like the displacement includes displacement from like the ability to make choice yes and like navigate effectively like it feels like an abandonment of of self of choice and yeah yeah so yeah. i think one of the things that gets recovered you know when we talk about recovery one of the things that is being recovered or that we're working on recovering is this moral compass you know and i think it's it, the idea of that kind of comes back to the idea of navigating yes. <laughs> through and, and having being able to find our right place and to stay in our right place, even yes. while we're having to move through complicated situations. So I think 
definitely what I've noticed with Iboga in my own life is it is the it, it's able to come in and sort of go through my life and my thoughts and provide this kind of really clear direction. And um, yeah, so I mean, that's for me, it's just it's so, so much about how it, it facilitates recovery. It's, it's not so much about the fact that it can take away these withdrawal symptoms, but that for some reason, when we come out of it, we're not craving doing the thing that's leading us in the direction that we don't want to be moving anymore. It's, right. a, it's a, deeper than just the, the opiates of substance. Absolutely, yes. And I think, um, I think obviously, people who have spent many years uh, depending on opiates, for example, um, you know, and you just talk about a moral compass that becomes totally compromised. Uh, clearly, self-hate uh, becomes a part of the personality or one's own self-opinion, uh, if you like, or s low self-esteem. And I think, you know, the healing journey ultimately brings you to self-love. Um, and yeah. to get there, you need your moral compass, you need your self-respect, and you need a sense of um, self-confidence. So it's quite a journey. Yeah. And, and as you say, the yoga, in its way helps to, uh, you know, point you along the way, I suppose, guide you along the way. Um, you know, I think the initial, my my impression of the very initial uh, Iboga experience I had was that it's really just laying out the path. It's not doing all the, you know, you're not going to walk away from the first experience so sorted. You've got a lot of work to do. It's, it's all ahead of you, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, do you want to uh, maybe talk a bit more about your own experience um, in Gabon? I mean, like, uh, how did that go? How, like, you know, was it uh, mind-blowing? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a fair, fair word, yeah. Um, I think... For me, it was very much about recentering in a lot of ways. So, like I said, I had been working with Ibogaine for about five years before, and I had been for years before that um, around other psychedelics and having really powerful experiences. But um, I think what I what I felt from that experience in Gabon, I mean, most most obviously, it was the the clarity that it was the origin point for my work with Iboga. Not only my work, but just for Iboga in general. And so, any of my work sort of had to be with that sense that it was that <laughs> that origin point. Um, so. It, that shift of perspective and like how I felt oriented towards the rest of the world around me sort of shifted in, in ways that seemed quite subtle in some ways, but really over time ripped out to, to cause some major changes in my life. And I think like what you're talking about today, you don't, you don't necessarily walk away with everything sorted but it was like finding this new foundation 
Yes. And being kind of like soldered to that, like, yes, um, anchored. very strongly. And, and then afterwards, feeling coming back into my life and into my relationships and into the all of the constructs that I had built with my former worldview and then seeing them not fit in, in, in very small ways and having to sort of over time make these little changes. And, and when I look back at it, I always thought, look, it took probably a year of more intensive change and two years at least where I was still very much reorganizing my life. And it wasn't necessarily an easy, <laughs> an easy process. Coming out of it, I felt very, very empowered. Um, like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking with really broad, overarching strokes. But when I was actually in the experience, it was not something very visual for me, which is the case for a lot of people. I'm not, I'm not somebody who remembers my dreams almost ever. Um, and I don't know if that maybe has something to do with it. Um, it's never been very important to me that I'm not seeing things because of the other kinds of changes that I feel. But I didn't see much in the aboga. What I felt was just sort of steeped into this rich void. Like there was no thought. There was sort of if, if visions would have been these symbols of things, it was just the demolition of the symbolic world. And it was just very direct, present, physical. Um, I felt like I was vibrating. And when it wasn't that I felt unconscious, because if I needed to get up and go to the bathroom or crawl to the side of the temple and vomit, which happened enough times, I was able to do it just fine and to go back and lie down, but then it would just be poof, back into the, that big, heavy, open space. And coming out of it, it was feeling this um, really tangible vibration, especially in my torso. Um, that stuck with me for a couple of months and just sort of gradually kind of, uh, I don't know what to say, like integrated, you know, it's right. not like it went away, but it just, so, so I came out of it feeling extremely empowered and stronger and there was a lot of energy to navigate um, and try to learn how to, how to wield, I guess, or right. how, what to do with it, you know, in a good way. And so that was very helpful and very um, very useful. But I think it was the, the process that came later of noticing that even things that I'd taken for granted as being sort of, you know, normal things in my life, even those things were changing because of this new worldview that I was seeing things from. And so almost everything shifted, you know, for me. And mm. so even though there was this period of empowerment, that was like this high afterwards. There was a period afterwards that was quite challenging to realize there was a lot more to let go of than what I had even thought <laughs> would, it would, would more to let go of than I even knew I was attached to. You nice. know? 
And so, um, you know, I, I would say probably the, the wave of that change has settled out. Um, I still feel really connected to that foundation, but less like it's, you know, driving a wedge through my life than it, nice, <laughs> nice. Than it was. I feel more like it's opened up the space and now I'm kind of just with it. Good. And and um, yeah. actually, I wanted to ask you about the, obviously in Gabon, uh, the community is a large part of the experience because, yeah. you know, so I wonder what your thoughts are on how, uh, how important that was in Gabon and how different it is here in, in the West, in Mexico, for example, where you are. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the whole context is... Um, very much in in community. So I mean, the I don't know if people have have familiarity with other kinds of traditional practices, but for example, with with ayahuasca, there'll be usually a facilitator or several facilitators that you know at least since the 70s the way that the ceremonies have developed is that there's these few facilitators with this group of people um and in buiti it's almost the inverse where there'll be one or two or several uh, initiates and uh, the rest of the village and even visitors from neighboring villages you know there for the for the ceremony so it can be group, dozens of people even, you know, they're making music. Um, it's a very theatrical and intense. There's a heavy, heavy um, reliance on this symbolic language that's um, acted out and performed. And it almost feels like, like people go through their experience and come out and then act what they saw in their buiti. And then it's like repeating that over and over through their, through their life. And there's a way that it kind of integrates with the, the visions that everyone else has had. And there may even be this transmission of, you know, you know, a grandfather's experience or whatever they you know, needed to be doing in the ceremony over and over and over again, getting passed down. So for me, it wasn't necessarily, and I don't know, because, you know, it's one thing to sort of be there and to have been gifted this experience. It's another thing to grow up in that kind of environment with that relationship to the community, which I don't have, you know. So um, I don't know how how universal any of the, the symbolic language is or not. Um, but I can say that the level of communication and synchronicity that comes out of that interaction and that environment is extremely beautiful. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's obviously something that doesn't get recreated at that level, not even close in the, in the clinical spaces. Of course. So do you think there are any lessons that can be easily uh, learned that might, you know, uh, that may, you know, what I'm seeing, what I'm, I'm, what I'm kind of imagining here is that, yes, we don't have that tribal 
or community uh, situation he, that they have in Gabon. But yet, in another sense, there is a tribe here. It's just a different kind of tribe. And you know, sure. the vibes are right, then maybe they it can, in some ways, uh, provide similar energies to the experience. And that's where your role sure. actually comes in, you know, so... Well, and I mean, the thing that I realized somewhat afterwards is that, I mean, Bwiti is a, is a tradition that stretches back, I mean, at, at, at most 150 years, um, at least in the form that it's, that it's in, which is this mix of uh, Bantu culture that maybe has these like remnants of this Egyptian influence from that Bantu migration, like down the African coast, mixed with the use of iboga that goes back obviously much, much further than 150 years by the by the pygmies that were further in the in the jungle. So there's this mix and this blending that's given birth to this tradition that's very much evolving and it's very much alive in different ways from village to village. And like I mentioned that I was initiated in the Desumba Fang um, tradition or a village that sort of has roots in both of those, but there's others, you know, and there's different kinds of initiations and there's, it's a, it's a really rich, um, you know, tapestry of approaches. What I had to realize coming out of it was that, you know, as much as it has been inspiring and um, helpful to be able to see, um, you know, to be able to break out of my own, you know, limited worldview to maybe one that's slightly larger, you know, that has a bigger crack in it, I guess. Um, what's been also helpful is realizing that it has been important to reconnect with my own moral compass, but also that there is value in some of the traditions that I'm connected to that um, have been carried forward and, you know, by, by people here. For example, one of the things that I've found really useful is the ritual and the tradition around 12 steps, which I think a lot of people don't well, people who have um, issues with 12 steps do for really legitimate reasons. Um, and I think that it's because, the, you know, within 12-step communities, there's also the 12 traditions that sort of keep it in a way non-professional and are supposed to um, keep a sort of uh, balance and decentralization that gets completely sideswiped by the mainstream treatment community that sort of um, coerces people to be involved and, um, you know, all kinds of things. So, but for me, it was realizing that there is a lot of this um, wisdom that comes from that and having been engaged with it also see recovery as a sacrament and um, the the language and the synchronicity that comes out of of 12-step groups has been for me something that's been really valuable so and other traditions too 
um, the tradition of transpersonal psychology and psychoanalysis. Um, you know, other, you know, other traditions that I'm connected to and sort of reaching more deeply into those roots while feeling less overwhelmed by them, less like they're sort of heavy authorities over my life and something that more I can, I can access with my own autonomy, but, but to connect with them, you know? Okay. So when someone uh, contacts you or, or makes contact with you, um, do they come to you aware of your, if you like, your approach, or do you explain it to them what happens? I'm just curious. Um, I think, I mean, it's uh, it's not something that I try to recreate for people. Mm. <laughs> you know, my, my own, my experience is my own. Um, and really what it is, I think, meeting with somebody who's going through the process is to kind of become a passenger on their own journey too. And definitely there's, like I said, resources and experience to be able to share from it. But, um, but it's also to be able to just sort of help to nurture what's unfolding. And there's definitely times where um, it's something that's, completely new for me um people are like I, when we talk about like a moral compass um there it may not be so relative morality but people are definitely navigating different challenges and different identities and different um societies even like you know wherever they are so it's uh yeah it's always it's a, it's a journey for me as well you know <laughs> right right yeah um and uh so uh, how long do you normally stay in contact with somebody or they you, you you sort of like you kind of facilitate the next move is that it for them yeah, when they go back that, home to family that's something or that, it's something that varies quite a bit um from person to person there's definitely people who I will talk to at the clinic and then never see them again. There's people who um, I will see come onto the groups that we do. Um, there's some people who I will work with for days or weeks or months or, you know, in some cases, I mean, there's, I haven't been even doing specifically, I've been doing that you know, now for, for years, but there's definitely people who I've been staying in touch with um, long-term. And usually what, what happens is the people who I stay in touch with are interested in um, working with um, Ibogaine boosters or interested in doing another treatment or, you know, still are relating very, very strongly with their Ibogaine experience, even while they're going and finding other resources afterwards right so it really depends you know that's where like i said it's really something that's uh that's collaborative and sometimes you know what i do is not the most appropriate option for people sometimes people need a lot more um a lot more structure so there's a couple of aftercare centers that um that i also work with you know, in some ways, too, where people will go for a month or six weeks and do really structured integration 
work in a residential setting and even have access to other plant medicines and, and that. And that's much more appropriate for some people. And then when I'm working with people, it's sort of even a step lighter than like an outpatient right. or something. It's, it's sort of this guidance for people who are pretty self-directed and, and resourcing for, for their recovery already. So, so what do you do when somebody is maybe going back to the same situation that they left? Um, which clearly is, you know, problematic. So, you know, to say, do you advise people to, you know, to cut ties with their past or what? Well, I mean, it really depends on what that situation is and, you know, what it looks like. But there's definitely times where it's very obvious, you know, that there's not going to be a really fertile ground for growing and moving forwards, you know, if people go back to the environment that they're in. Um, so, you know, as much as possible, it's to sort of prepare people for that before treatment. And I think, you know, the, the goal in doing that kind of preparation is just to avoid what happens in some cases, which is people will come do the treatment thinking that they'll be back at work in five days and everything will be sort of, as long as they can just stop taking the opiates, everything else will be kind of kind of fine, you know. Um, and then realize as soon as they're, you know, right in the middle of it, that it's something much deeper and much more ubiquitous, this transformation that they're going through than they ever could have imagined. So end up coming back later but with a different perspective on what they're doing. And so, you know, part of what I do with the consultations at the beginning is try to see if we can, um, you know, frame the experience in in a bigger way from the outset, the first, you know, <laughs> from mm. before the first treatment. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. Okay, so actually maybe now uh, we might go on and talk a little bit about Gita. What do you think? Sure. Yeah, yeah, you were the director of Gita, and uh, you know that's how I actually got first to know to know you. You helped you helped me sell some of my T-shirts down in Mexico. Oh, good. Oh, <laughs> yeah, good. Thank you very much. I was, <laughs> I was delighted, and um, <laughs> but that was a you know that was a fantastic conference. I I don't think I've ever been to anything like it. The, you had a superb panel of of guests, and you did a fantastic job. And yet here we are, oh, four you. years later, and Gita's in disarray. It seems. Yeah. Well, I mean. My involvement with Gita started really organically, I guess, because of going to conferences and realizing that uh, people didn't know how to make PowerPoint presentations and use a projector, <laughs> um, and sort of just helping people really just to facilitate smoothing out how the platform was operating. And um, I started organizing conferences, and that's where the, you know, the formal whatever structure of the organization kind of came out of. So for me, in my view, that was really, I mean, it was 
it was for me the community piece. It was seeing what kinds of connections and um, uh, things could be accomplished if there was, you know, some coordination. And I think that there was a pretty, pretty good list of things that we were able to do. The clinical guidelines, like you, you mentioned at the beginning, was I, I think one of the nicer things that came out of it. Prior to that document, there Howard Lotsoff, who um, first you know discovered and did a lot of the initial development of ibogaine uh, for for opiate detox, and and some of the other sort of early pioneers had a manual for ibogaine therapy. But it didn't mention electrocardiograms, which is something that's so basic and fundamental to safety screening. So what we were really responding to in those discussions was how can we do treatments more safely? And I think that over those years and through that document, we made some really nice progress. And it's not like it's a, a finished product by any means, but it's definitely, I think, contributed to treatments being done more more safely. And, um, you know, the other piece that came up in the community discussion was around sustainability. And I don't know if the results of that are as concrete because they're more, yeah, I think that the, the change is still unfolding. But definitely, I think over those years, a lot of people started to rely more heavily on um, Voaconga sourced Iowagin. And the discussion about the sustainability has become more, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's become more known to more people at least. So, but after that conference that you came to, um, what started to happen was, I think at that one was the first time where we started to have people from the addiction treatment community and the harm reduction community and all these other sort of tangential communities that hadn't been coming to Ibogaine conferences coming to participate in the discussion to some extent. But um, at the same time, in terms of like the organic growth of the discussion, it got to this point where people had really divergent agendas about what they wanted to see. I mean, the most clear thing for me is, you know, as stark as the border here in Mexico, the agenda of American activists is to create a legal framework through the FDA Whereas here in Mexico, the needs are much different because the, you know, trying to pursue um, a legal status would be unnecessary and, if anything, sort of uh, possibly limit access. So people had really divergent needs in terms of what should be happening in a community discussion. So I think what we've seen since then is conversations that are more regional. Like I think now the Ibogaine Conference, there's one that happens in Europe sort of more regularly and probably European countries share more of a, you know, common common needs. So 
I think it, it's okay, you know, that uh, Gita doesn't have as much of a purpose to to serve as it as it did. Um, maybe it's uh, it will again, or there'll be some some life into it at some point. I don't know. Well, it certainly has done a lot of good work. I mean, uh, just for our listeners, I, 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 the the Gita, the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance, um, in one way was set up to try to bring. Um, it'd be an umbrella for uh, ibogaine providers around the world to, to sort of, um, if you like, create a set of standards that maybe people would follow. And I think that was one of the noble, one of the nobler, you know, uh, objectives, which for some reason never got off the ground and never really succeeded. Was that because of the uh, the fact that Gita was seeking some kind of um, annual payment from providers? Was that part of the reason why it never took off? Well, I mean, definitely trying to um, support the work that was going into it was a was a factor, <laughs> without a doubt. But I think part of the reason that that wasn't um, as obvious of a thing to support was just the the pathway forwards. And like I mentioned, those divergent interests. So when I came to it, like I said, the organization was very organic. It was out of what are the needs. And that document around safety was very clear that that was something that was going to be useful and to serve pretty much no matter what direction things went in. You know, it serves people now. It will serve as a reference, even if people don't discuss it when they're looking at clinical protocols. Um, all, you know, uh, legal frameworks, you know, unfortunately, the only time I've heard it being used is when it's being called into evidence um, in cases where somebody's died. Um, but that's what I mean. It's sort of a, you know, it, 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 <laughs> I don't know if it's too much to say, but it's like it has a has a soul, like it exists. It, it has a... Um, um, a purpose from no matter which direction you approach it. Yeah, but definitely. Moving, yeah. Sorry, moving forwards, the only way that Gita could have uh, formalized, and this might be interesting for people who are involved with psychedelic activism, or at least the history and the discussion around medicalization, the only way that we could have gone forwards <clears throat> would have been to create some sort of a professional association. Um, and but the context that we were working in is one that was completely deregulated. Almost almost nobody was working within a legal framework. So I actually had to draw some inspiration from some, uh, you know, there's a, a community here in southern Mexico that has developed this idea of anarcho-capitalism, which it's not necessarily something that I, it's not it's not something that I prescribed to, but it was realistically to look at that people are working in small for-profit businesses in a deregulated space. And so in the anarcho-capitalist playbook, part of balancing the power in the interactions then between the service provider and the person who's whatever consuming that service 
is to provide patient advocacy. So we started by developing a patient advocacy program. Um, and then working on those guidelines came later. And so to continue to advance Gita organically in that direction would have been to create a, um, a basically an anarchist um, association. And I think that that didn't fit with the agenda of many people who were looking for more of a, um, a integrated approach, like looking at changing legal frameworks in whatever country that they're looking at, which, like I said, isn't relevant for much of the world, but it certainly is in the United States and certain countries in Europe and elsewhere. So that's where those divergent interests kind of muddied the, the vision, I guess, yeah. of the way forward. Yeah, but I, I think what strikes me is that um, those are lofty uh, uh, aims, but on a more practical level, um, mm -hmm. what really seems lacking is that uh, the clinics, all the clinics around the world, that they sign up to a charter where they uh, agree to uh, you know implement a set of standards um, that that improve the efficacy and safety of the experience. I think that's the one thing that I the one thing I'm sad about that Gita has not managed to get off the ground and was something that was discussed in 2016. I think that would be a fundamentally useful uh, thing because I think there is a problem with um, some of the uh, providers around the world who are. Um, if you how can I say, um, perhaps um, slightly um, well, what's I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but you know, you one would be they they not perhaps a hundred percent reliable. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Is that fair comment? <laughs> yes, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I I think that's the movement that we had in mind and that kind of like you're saying that signing up to that charter would have been defining now who becomes a member of this organization and i think that's where there was divergent interest because there's people who believe that the only way forward to opening up access is to medicalize the the treatment and I think if you were to go to my home country of Canada or um, most sort of uh, national, like federal regulatory agencies, that would be the that would be the approach. Um, so it's not an impractical view, you know. But as we know, and you know, as people, a lot of people will know who are looking at treatment, especially outside of. Tijuana, where there's a lot of medical centers, that's not the way that most people for decades have come to Ibogaine. That's not the background of many people who are working with Ibogaine and even people who are providing really wonderful, very safe services, you know. So mm. the the challenge then became around who who would be able to um, sign up to be able to participate in that. 
that organization. And, and I mean, it, there's there's sort of fundamental questions that come into it. And for me, the reason why I was involved with it as long as I was <laughs> was that it became about this politics of who's allowed to care, you know, <laughs> for for someone else. Um, and more fundamentally about this idea of like how how can who who's allowed to have access to this kind of medicine you know and i think for a lot of people even if they won't say it publicly um there's a feeling that you know, based on fair personal experience, that the medical system hasn't necessarily demonstrated that it has its own moral compass. You know, you can look at many examples in the addiction treatment industry, for example, of um, placing profits before, <laughs> you know, the people who are coming through and, and, and the medical system in, in general, you can see that. Um, so there's a, you know, uh, maybe a healthy distrust in, in that and which has, you know, kept some of the efforts underground. And I think that's, you know, I, I, I'm trying to point to where the, the conflict and the divergence was. And I think why Gita hasn't moved forwards. And I think why the conversations have sort of just stayed within the, the community, the way that they have. Well, what's, what strikes me is that, um, yes, if one was to move to a, a medical model um, and rely on the medical industry, if you like, uh, a lot of people would not get treatment. And that would not be my okay. preferred option. Um, but my personally, and my, my whole, uh, my concern actually has always been, and continues to be, the fact that when people look for a provider, they don't have any, you know, it's, it's difficult to choose. Um, it's a bit, a bit of potluck. And if there was, even outside the medical framework, a set of standards that people subscribe to, but they're not, not necessarily within the, the medical industry itself, then that would add a layer of protection and, and uh, comfort for those uh, seeking treatment and that's you know i think yeah. we're a long way off from the, the the this day when people can walk in off the street and get uh, an ibogaine treatment in the local hospital and and it'll all be taken care of but that's a we're a long way away from that so that's in the meantime true. these clinics which are in mexico uh, and elsewhere yeah. are the backbone of uh, the ibogaine world and uh, and that's where i think we need maybe to it's a bit of a you know we need some kind of um, um, uh, if you like protective clothing cloth around the the, um, the around the provision of these services that if you like yeah, checkpoints like uh, gates that people can uh, come to and say okay well this at this point I know I have this much or whatever. You know, I just it really bothers me that some people are you know giving treatments who themselves, you know, God knows the week before someone comes to get treatment that maybe they're on a bender, you know. So uh, a bit of, it's a bit a bit of a concern. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it's not only the you know the the medical establishment that maybe doesn't share the same moral compass. You want to make sure that where you're going 
somebody's working from a ethical and healthy healthy place yeah and i yeah. think um you know the the reason why we called the safety document guidelines instead of standards is simply because there's no way to enforce them um, and so I think there's, in doing research, if anybody is looking for a place to go and do Ibogaine treatment and has these concerns, you know, um, there's definitely certain questions that are really useful to be able to, to ask. Mm. And it should also be possible to, by now, you know, find... Um, other people who can share some experience about what it was like going through certain certain places and you know just to be able to do some research i think it's a really good idea to do so if you were just to suggest a couple of important questions that my people might ask what would they be well i mean <clears throat> what's your um, what's your screening process look like would be would be one and most places should say that they're gonna want to take a full blood panel an electrocardiogram and from there it's gonna depend a lot more on what your specific situation is what you're hoping to detox from or whatever, because if you're on Suboxone, it's going to vary greatly from if you're um, injecting methamphetamine, for example. There's just different protocols. So um, being able to have some, you know, guidance with that process is one of the things that I do with people. I provide usually a you know the the first way that I'm that I get in contact with people is I do a 30 minute consultation. So if anybody's curious, even just to how to answer this question, like which questions should I be asking while I'm looking for a treatment center um, that are really specific to my situation, then you know they're welcome to get in get in touch with me. Um, but I think it's also fair to ask what somebody's safety record is, what's the qualifications of the people who are going to be there during the treatment and who are going to be reviewing the screening materials. Like, are they going to be reviewed by a cardiologist? Is there going to be a doctor? Or in, in some cases, having a doctor on site during the treatment isn't even the right qualification. It's more, is it somebody who has emergency experience because not all doctors do have hands-on you know um, experience like that so in some cases it might be more useful to have a paramedic but you know dependent depends on the doctor and their experience so really you're asking about the team and how the treatment's conducted and I think by now even though like you said there's people who are doing this in in not as good of a way, there are some good options of places to go that have a pretty solid safety record and have good teams that are medically supported and can provide good treatments consistently. No, it sounds definitely sounds like a conversation with you beforehand would be a useful thing. 
to help people get orientated and that's great that you're there that people can get some kind of orientation because you know there's a certain amount of opportunism as well going on that um people uh can unfortunately fall uh, prey to um yeah. so so just actually going to the talking now more on the global level um what is the what is the agenda if you like for the on the global level with uh, with uh i begin at, at right now do you know um well i i i still think that out you know out in the world that there's all kinds of different divergent agendas like i was talking about before um i think that in general people who feel passionate about what they've seen i begin do for themselves or people close to them feel like it's something that should be more available for people and so the the big kind of movements there are um around opening up access in legal frameworks for sure and also about where is it going to come from so there's definitely good work that's being done inside of Gabon so like i mentioned before to try to protect access to um traditional communities um that's one aspect that's important the other is benefits back to traditional communities for the knowledge and resources that they've shared and and also just to share in the benefits that people outside of Gabon are um experiencing from it and so there's um at, you know at least one really nice organization there called Blessings of the Forest that you know it's possible to find them online and make a little donation that would be the equivalent cost of planting an iboga tree um which i think is a nice way to give back Absolutely. it would be nice if more people could could do this kind of thing um on a on a bigger scale though i think you know having talked to people interested in doing legal development like running clinical trials and the the issue before even approaching the FDA for example and running a trial is having a secure and consistent source and i think you know people talk about it's important that there's a GMP source of ibogaine like somewhere that the lab is following the proper protocols but even more important than that is for an investor who's going to be going into the um clinical trial process is where is it all going to come from afterwards to serve this market that they're hoping to open up which is you know enormous so when you look at that scale i think that it's pretty obvious that the only way of being able to meet that demand with that kind of like rapid scale up is a synthetic source of ibogaine which right now it's not cost effective but were you to you know have 100 times the um the demand it would be cost cost effective and probably the only the only way to do it at that speed so i i do think that there's there's something that is going to be lost in that process i guess it, it's sort of hard to hard to describe exactly it's not 
like I feel that everybody should have the the root bark, you know, but it's sort of like missing what I tried to describe that I saw and that I felt in Gabon, which was that relationship to the the plant. And it's not only the the fact that it's like coming from the tree that <clears throat> is growing up beside them, you know, for years and years. It's the directness of that. And I think I'm not sure what will change when you place it into <clears throat> like a strictly medical setting and sort of um, confuse and dissolve the relationship between the the medicine and the land. So I'm not I'm not sure what will what will change in that process. But that's but that's definitely um, you know when we talk about like it's, it would be necessary to go to full synthesis in order to be able to do that. It would be necessary to do that in order to um, exploit ibogaine that quickly for that many people. Mm. You know, and you know sort of a a given in that agenda it's like underwritten into that is that there is a <clears throat> underlying need to be able to exploit this resource as much as possible and just to make sure that nobody's being seriously super fucked while that's happening yeah. but that that you know that that it's it's important to be able to exploit it and i do think that um, there's probably my view of what the global situation is, mm. is that there's probably much more need for a systemic change in order to address the situation with, like, the problem that we face as a society with addiction. It's, it's, it's much more than just trying to find a way to get a lot of ibogaine to a lot of people. I think it's trying to like you said, recover that, that soul, you know, and that's something that I think is going to be a, a lot more complicated than just, you know, oh, absolutely. getting Ibogaine out there. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, what strikes me is actually in some ways when you're talking about going to a synthetic form that, that it opens up a very interesting philosophical uh, discussion about whether or not the spirit is actually in the molecule and, you know, and whether or not, the whatever chemical reaction takes place in the molecules that are created that somehow the energetics of those molecules if you like vibrate and create a, a doorway if you like to bring in the spirit so perhaps synthetic is not all so bad but maybe there is something going to be lost right. along the way but it's an interesting conversation uh, I think actually I remember having that uh, a, a little bit of that conversation with Ken Alper in uh, in Mexico. It came up somewhere in one of the in one of the uh, presentations. So, uh, well, we've been having a really interesting conversation. I think maybe it might be nice to round it off with just a quick discussion about um, nutrition because I know that's something that interests you as it obviously interests myself. Uh, and I know that you, you know, the the importance of nutrition in helping to rebuild the gut and, and, and you know, people rebuilding themselves after a session is very important. So that's, a, that's something else that you, you take an interest in, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the, 
the recommendations that I usually make for people are sort of um, looking at it like this is a, uh, especially for people who have years and years of, of use behind them and who are experiencing some of the, the costs of maybe not only the, the use, but other health problems and complications that come up with the lifestyle that they were living. And so the way that, I mean, the recommendations that I make are, are usually looking at it like it's a, almost like emergency repair, you know, like uh, it's, it's very common that there's major gastrointestinal issues um, with people that are long-time opiate users and that even being able to do some of that gut repair through the use of probiotics and probiotic foods and, and that is even, even doing that focus on the gut flora is something that there's, there's studies showing reduction of um, morphine withdrawal symptoms, for example. Like the, the, the gut is so involved in it makes up so much of the body's neurotransmitter system through the gut too. So, um, so that's one aspect. And then there's also, uh, you know, other major challenges that people face afterwards usually involve um, sleep would be one of them. And also energy. There's not an insignificant number of people who I talk to that use opiates to um, for energy, which might be counterintuitive for for some people, but sort of as a way to be able to, if not wake up in the morning, at least be able to get through the the day in a certain way. So there's other kind of amino therapies and stuff that. Um, people have found really helpful in making that transition and sort of rebuilding their natural uh, energy resources or reserves. So that those are all things that I think it can be really helpful for um, for people to be able to focus on. So I know that that's something that you're interested in. In two, I think it's a really valuable resource and something that's. That's overlooked, but um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully people will yeah, pay attention to it. I, I definitely notice people gravitate naturally towards a different diet afterwards, and the body has its own intelligence that way. But like I said, sometimes having those uh, those therapies, it, it's important for to help get through the the worst of it. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 quite. Uh, ironic we live in a time when you can buy you know supplements um f quite uh, cheaply in many ways uh, and and they can they can have such profound effects on people's health and yet people are lining up to go to the doctor to get pharmaceuticals that ultimately uh, poison them and, and 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 it shows you if you like how much, how pervasive the medical industry is that uh, you know that there isn't uh, these cheaper options are not being pursued that would be better for people's health i just you know it's it's mind boggling but i think that's yeah. that's reflective of the of the sort of of the if you like the lie, if you like, that we live with, that somehow pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry is there for our benefit. 
Um, I mean, yeah. obviously, there's some benefit that they're there to some extent. I actually feel very sorry for a lot of medical practitioners. I know in the United States, they, they, they're they the highest rate of suicide. So they really do suffer yeah. quite a lot of them. It's a tough call. Um, so I think we are, you and I and people like us are really lucky to be around something such as innovative and as, as if you like, um, with such great potential as the Ebola and Ibogaine. And, you know, maybe we won't see it in 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 who knows in the, in in these years to come we won't see the the full benefits of it but it's day it's day will come i mean i think eventually it will it will it will come to the surface when all the other therapies that are uh, fleecing people out of all sorts of, of house and home have proven to be um, you know uh, less than effective so yeah yeah, yeah. well I, I i actually feel like i almost can't let it go that you brought up about the the spirit of the the molecule <laughs> okay um just just to treat it briefly um i think you know for me like for me i still i still go back to this idea of the the context like being in the right place and time and feeling that connection and, and being situated as as part of the the spiritual experience like feeling that connection mm. and i think um from in my experience like i mentioned working with ibogaine hydrochloride it definitely has this spiritual dimension without a doubt but one of the things that um you know people talk about with psychedelics is is set and setting and so the the difference, for example, between what I felt and what I experienced in my initiation in Gabon and what I imagine as an endpoint um, or what could be an endpoint through like clinical trials is so so far and so different. And I think, you know, even what you're talking about with um, nutrition and you know all these other, important dimensions is important and makes up part of the context. And so I think as long as we can cultivate a really holistic and nourishing context for, um, for Ibogaine treatment to happen in it, it's because it does touch so many areas of our lives and so many dimensions and just making sure that it's, medically safe and that somebody's you know heart is um, recovering without needing intervention through the treatment it's just such a such a narrow focus so that's part of the reason why I do like you said I do really value the the freedom that we have to be able to work with it in a holistic way and and just hope that it stays like that you know, definitely. I mean, I suppose if you think about it, uh, everything has vibrating and everything has energy. So in your own Gabon, for example, the energy waves, if you like, that are there interacting with the person undergoing the the, ex uh, the initiation is clearly in, having an impact. And the energy is going to be very different in a hospital, for example. So I guess it's not yeah. just about the molecule's energy or the vibration of the molecule. There's a lot more going on if we could see the energy uh, all around us. Um, yeah, and, and that context in Gabon is, like we talked about, it's coming out of generations and generations and generations of experience. Yeah. And one of the 
things that psychiatrists and Western doctors don't do is do that kind of initiation themselves. Like I, I know because I've been looking into it, but to go through um, training to be a clinical psychologist requires going through no therapy. But sorry, it doesn't require going through none. It just doesn't require going through therapy at all yourself. Right. Um, so I think that's something that, <laughs> yes. you know, that the Ibogaine community has benefited from, even though, yeah, there's people who may not be doing it in a good way, but that it's been able to be nurtured and carried forward by people who do have such a, a rich experience themselves, I think has been really important. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think... My point is, I guess, is that not that um, just focusing on patient safety is the be all and end all, but is to to have a situation where, um, you know, someone who's extremely vulnerable has a basic, uh, uh, you know, a basic set of standards to protect them. And then we yes. can add the other, the rest in and make it even better. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfectly. Yeah, so Jonathan, it's a um, delight if we managed to, uh, to have this conversation after all the technical difficulties I had earlier, and you were very patient. And I thank you very much. And um, I, yeah, it's you know, hopefully, uh, you know, people will get in contact with you because I know that your services are very much needed, and and it will help. You know, and and they aren't. I know from talking to you that they're very reasonable. So uh, I would encourage people to contact you through your website, which is Seba Ibogaine, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope Jonathan will be seeing you again in a conference soon. It's a pity you don't organize another one. Yeah, not not uh, not in the medium term future. <laughs> okay. Well. Yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe we'll we'll run into uh, run into you at one of the forums somewhere. But John, it's been great to talk to you, uh, and uh, and maybe we'll have another conversation again. Likewise. Well, thanks again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much and all the best to you, Jonathan. Bye-bye now. Okay, take care.